Hi, this is Adam. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded several months ago. There's been a bit of a backlog getting this stuff out the door. And there are a few references on this episode to the pandemic, uh, the circumstances of which have since changed a little bit about quarantine and lockdown. So wanted to clarify that up top and uh, please enjoy. I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. Welcome back. Here are, we are. Are you welcoming me or, or are hopefully not just theoretical listeners? I'm welcoming you and our legions upon legions of fans. <laughs> To another episode of Not Therapy, we got a, we got some catching up to do. We got news. We do. She came I, back. I don't know if she came back. Yeah, Clara came back. She's been back for a little bit, and it's been good. It's been good. And well, we were just talking. I had some question as to whether or not we even wanted to do another session slash episode because there's not been much drama i don't feel like i'm dealing with many questions you're you're super pixelated i don't know if that will affect audio or not but uh, not to make you self-conscious but you're, <laughs> you're, my face you, you, you look yeah you you look like <laughs> you look like 1992 uh, nintendo console <laughs> oh that's weird so oh shit so yeah, so part of my question as to whether or not it was worth doing a another episode is there hasn't been much drama. There hasn't been much conflict. I've noticed certain tendencies in myself that I've pretty successfully to a degree that I find remarkable been able to just kind of let go and not act upon. And perhaps we could talk about that, but also part of what this experience for me has been of her being here and of me living with a woman, albeit temporarily and not for that long, but living with a woman for the first time in 17 years, part of it has been, I keep likening it to myself, to, to, to a psychedelic experience where mm. when you're in the experience, a lot of it is just staying present and letting go and just observing. And then once you come down, once the trip is over, yes, then you can take out the, the microscope and the scalpel and dissect the experience and make meaning of it and construct the narrative in an infinite number of ways. But when you're in the experience, that's not necessarily that helpful. And that's the thing I've been able to do even with myself, again, to a degree that I've found pretty, pretty remarkable is I've been able to just kind of look at it like, all right, I'm just here, I'm present. And I don't really have to figure out what's going on with this woman what, and how this is going to play out. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so you were feeling like maybe you didn't need to record a session today because you're not feeling an, a pressing need to figure something out. You're not feeling really troubled by anything. And your feeling was that that's when you want to be doing a session is when you're really puzzling over something. Partially that and partially also a feeling of the trying to 
to bounce ideas off you and conceptualize what I'm going through. And I mean, I do think therapy, most therapy, talk therapy entails an element of figuring out, which isn't a negative mm -hmm. thing often, but it does entail an element of let's try to get a sense of what's going on here, get a handle, get some perspective. And so part of my hesitation is it feels like maybe the best thing for me to do right now is to not try to do that, to just mm -hmm. be in the experience as it unfolds. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no. I mean, having said that, we do have the aforementioned legions of listeners, we, whom I, I do feel hungry. a... Uh, <laughs> Our advertisers <laughs> have certain demands. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Mike. I mean, remember the deal that Jeff cut with us? <laughs> right. We, uh, we don't look askance on his ethically suspect practices in exchange. He'll give us a, a, a token percentage off wet wipes. And uh, yeah, no, I'm down to sell out. That's not the issue. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, I think... It's an important issue you're raising, and it speaks to different ways that we can think about what therapy is. The question, you know, like, is, is therapy a, a thing to be used only when either times are tough and you really need help figuring something out? Or is therapy something to be used, you know, when something has already happened and you're trying to figure it out kind of post hoc? Or another way to look at it, which was sort of behind my encouragement that we jump on the line today and and do a sesh-isode, session-slash-episode. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> do a sesh-isode. Is that, you know, I, I really view therapy, this kind of therapy that we're not doing, as more of a, as just an ongoing practice. And, and you just show up on a regular basis, you know, ideally weekly in, you know, in, in a real psychoanalytic treatment multiple times a week, but whatever the frequency you show up regularly and you just kind of be with whatever comes up, sort of like a meditation almost, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't meditate only if you, if you approach a meditation practice, like, Oh yeah, that's something that I pull out of the bag only when times are really tough. You no, know, you're not, that's not really the idea. Uh, you're not going to get, as much out of it i think as if you approach any of these things as as a as a regular practice that you do rain or shine and just a part of your growth a part of your inner exploration i think really rich stuff can come up in therapy when you show up in on on one of those days and you say you know things are going great i don't really have anything to talk about mm, you never know where that's going to go it can you can wind up really hitting pay dirt yeah, and that's one reason why I'm I'm willing to do this right now. Not just willing, but I'm I'm I, I want to do this to see what comes out of this. Two, though, this is a broader topic, but this is not private one-on-one -on -one therapy. There is at least ostensibly or optimistically an element of entertainment that we're hoping will be present here, and perhaps it's my I know from as a performer where there's not. If there's not conflict in something I'm performing on stage, then there needs to be laughter. 
And yeah. if there's not laughter or conflict, then it's kind of like from the audience's perspective, well, wh- why are we here? Because conflict keeps people on the edge of their seat. They want to know what's yeah. going to happen. And I don't necessarily mean conflict between characters. It can be internal conflict, but some sort of something, two things kind of butting up against each other and something's got to give. Yeah. So, yeah. But that also is another form of surrender where I don't, you know, neither of us have a really a clear agenda for this. We feel like this is something that we want to put out there and not just for Jeff Bezos's advertising dollars, but also in the hopes that maybe it helps other people. And of course, you know, I'm, I am an entertainer. I I guess I'll embrace that term. So I have a vested (laughs) interest. (laughs) It is a funny term. You're a male entertainer. I, 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 I make, a living when there's not a pandemic going on by well not just by entertaining but my specific brand of entertainment is sharing what's going on in my life yeah via stand-up comedy and via the- theatrical monologues and so i want this to be another form for that so let's let's proceed and we'll see how this unfolds yeah all, all that said um you know the the potential value that whatever we talk about today has for art's sake and Jeff Bezos's advertising dollars sake aside from a personal standpoint we hadn't recorded in a while I found myself being curious how it's been going for you having Clara back in town and I have to be honest I you know when I, when you tell me that she's been here for a bit you're living together given everything i know about you everything we've covered in past episodes when you tell me there's not much going on there's not much to talk about i'm uh, a bit incredulous <laughs> like yeah right dude and fair enough there's been <laughs> there ha- stuff has been going on but it feels like the universal answer i've come up with as uh, is just kind of well, let me talk about specifics. Sure. But we don't have to we don't necessarily have to talk about specifics, too, because talking about the way you're approaching it, I think maybe we start there. That sounds really interesting and important. That yes, maybe and we'll, you want to take a different tact and not tell me that much about the specific doubts or whatever conflicts that have come up, but yeah, how are you managing? Well, there, ha- there haven't been that much with in the way of specific doubts and conflicts. By specifics, I mean using uh, specific examples of of what my process has been. Yeah. Someday. So, because I've been talking generally about with terms like surrender and letting go and stuff like that, which are incredibly vague. So, yeah, what the general my general experience has been. Well, a few things have become clear to me or more clear because some of this was clear before. One is I've been seeing a tendency to interpret how she's feeling or acting as a reflection on me. And specifically when she's, so she can, we've talked about this before, she can be incredibly effusive. I mean, she's a literal poet and her mastery of language is extraordinary is is intimidating for me so when she's being expressive she's really expressive but there are times when she's quite quiet and when she's being affectionate towards me she's very affectionate but there are times when she's not evincing that sort of behavior and so one thing i've observed is this sort of knee-jerk reaction to 
look at it when she's not being as affectionate as she sometimes is to wonder, oh, either is, you know, does this, it's not even, it's not even quite conscious, but there is this sort of, this sort of reflex to assume at an unquestioned unconscious level that it somehow reflects on me, that she's not as excited about me or the relationship or is attracted to me. Mm-hmm. The other part of that is there's a desire, again, a pretty much unconscious, unquestioned desire or impulse to try to troubleshoot or fix, mm-hmm. to think to myself, I say think to myself, but again, a lot of this is not conscious, though it's becoming conscious. Clearly, if it was totally unconscious, I couldn't be talking about it right now. But these are these are these very fleeting sort of impulses that I've been able to see because we're together a lot when she's not being totally affectionate to, to yeah, to want to win her over. And we've talked in the past about stand-up and how I feel like stand-up comedy, you can almost look at it as a form of OCD where that, with OCD, you're always looking for certainty or looking for reassurance. And stand-up is sort of the ultimate form of creative expression that where, where that's integral to it. Because every time the audience laughs, you get that reassurance. I've said this before, in ordinary one-on-one social engagements or at a dinner party or whatever, you know, there's you don't necessarily know how other people are receiving you. Are they enjoying the conversation? But with stand-up, I know exactly how the audience is receiving me, at least within broad parameters, whether they're enjoying it or not, because they're laughing or they're not laughing. And one of the dangers of stand-up, and I, I, I wonder, I suspect that this is probably something that a lot of stand-ups fall prey to, but certainly I fall prey to, is you can start to let that bleed over into your regular interactions with this desire to make people laugh or at least get some sort of reassurance or certainty to perform, essentially, in social situations. I would imagine there's a a chicken or the egg element in that. It's like, does someone who already has that predisposition and regular interactions, does that make them, are they seeking out? something similar when they decide to start being a stand-up. Yeah, that's a great point. Is is maybe that impulse for to to get reassurance and to entertain is a reason one goes into stand-up and for sure. I'm sure that's part of it too, but I do think it strengthens it because essentially you're training yourself. You're like a Pavlovian dog. You're training yeah. yourself to salivate to that dinner bell of laughter. Mm-hmm. And when you're not getting it, at least for me, I saw this years ago, and I've been able to largely stamp this out, but I, I became aware years ago that when I'm in, especially a group of people, there's this real, there's a part of my brain that rather than just being present in the interaction is kind of scanning the horizon for a little gap where I can drop in a little punchline or something. Yeah. yeah. And the effect that has, one, I think it probably sometimes is not that entertaining for people. It can, I imagine it can be annoying, but for me, what it the effect it started having was the same th- one of the same things that stand up can have and one of the reasons i sometimes have ambivalence towards stand up where you can feel it can paradoxically make you feel more lonely because mm-hmm. okay yeah now this group of people at this dinner party is laughing but they're laughing at things i've said to get them to laugh it's sort of it's almost like i'm it's not unconditional love Yes, mm. they're laughing, but they're laughing because I said something funny rather than they're just there being open and receptive and accepting of me as a flawed human being. I'm more in that performer mode. Yeah, I know that feeling really well. And I I feel it a lot of it'll show up in 
a sort of like mental a mental reviewing the next morning after a dinner party or something and especially Mm -hmm. i I think alcohol has a part of it we've talked about this before i don't think it made it into the podcast how alcohol i think there will be a little letting down of the guard um a little disinhibition and and my that tendency of mine to try to yeah you put it so beautifully scanning the horizon just trying to find little places to try to get a laugh in and then the next morning i'll i'll feel a little emotional hangover a little contraction after such a social like, gathering oh, what did i say or what did I say? I... yeah and then you and then you like kind of pull out your scorecard and you're like oh but i did like i remember like so you're trying to reassure yourself jesse, essentially jesse, the next morning. jesse laughed at oh no i did get like two good laughs at that and that's how they probably liked me and it's like yeah it's just nonsense <laughs> well it's not nonsense of course i mean we are social animals <laughs> and we evolved to care deeply about how other people receive us i mean particularly you yeah. look at the context of we grew up in you know these small grew up we, we evolved in the context of these small tribes so now if someone doesn't like us the costs in the the real world costs are pretty minimal you know if someone yeah. doesn't like your facebook post or says something nasty about you on twitter yeah. who cares but when you're living in a band of 80 people if someone doesn't like you that's a real problem that could lead to ostracization which could lead to starvation lack of mating opportunities so i think it's not nonsense to care about what people think about you but yes it's nonsense in the sense of it's not helpful it doesn't facilitate actually connecting to people but at the same time i've thinking about the like prototypical village of 80 people I'll bet that they're in such a scenario I'll, where people are really close and you know banded together for survival. I'll bet there's also a lot more conflict than I'm comfortable with in my life. I've never been the kind of person who was comfortable being close to people and also having a fight or getting annoyed mm-hmm. and and stuff like that. And I think that a lot of people can handle that just fine. They're just kind of someone ticks you off, you yell at them. Ideally, you express your anger more effectively than that. But I didn't, I, you know, a lot of it has to do with the house I grew up in. I, I don't, I never got comfortable really expressing anger with people I was close with. So it was kind of like you're trying to please everyone and you're trying really hard not to offend anyone too. And those two things together, I've, that's a combined package, I think, to lead to that f- feeling of loneliness even when in the presence of other people do you mean so you mean in a small village your fear would be that you would feel very reticent to have any open conflict with anyone where you're more comfortable where there's more anonymity where there's in a world of eight billion people where you piss one person off who cares no i think i'm not comfortable with it in any of those settings i would i think that in a in the small village scenario that yeah with our kind of evolutionary psychology hats on neither of neither of us being experts who deserve to put on such hats but in that like prototypical imaginary village i think you are forced to get comfortable with conflict and disagreement and stuff whereas in our world now maybe there's so many people that you can just avoid it and stay locked up in your little echo chamber and your home um yeah well, I don't, I mean, there's, so sure, there's an element in a smaller community uh, where everyone kind of knows everyone else's business. 
and that can actually reduce conflict because you, it makes it more difficult to engage in deception or selfish behavior. I th- yeah. Yeah. I was kind of spacing out when you were saying that because I was thinking about the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> what was it? It better be fucking good, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to win your approval. <laughs> I was thinking that that's like a, this is a difference between us for all the similarities in the ways our minds work and our Jewish mothers and this and that. I think that's actually a big difference between us is when you were a kid, there was lots of conflict in your life. And when I was a kid, there was not, there was, yeah. In my childhood, there was almost a problematic absence of conflict. I didn't learn how to express anger. Whereas, yeah, one of these days when we pull into Momsville, we're going to learn about how there was quite a bit of expressed anger in your childhood. There was, but there was also a fear of expressing anger. Uh-huh, I wouldn't yeah. say I learned how to express anger in a healthy or productive way because anger can be useful in yeah. some contexts. Yeah. Whereas for me as a kid, it was more just overwhelming emotion and it was just, uh, just I, I, I couldn't ch- express it or channel it yeah. in any productive or helpful way. And it would literally explode, literally with me throwing and smashing things. Hmm. Yeah, and it didn't feel safe. It didn't feel, my own anger didn't feel safe to me because it, yeah. it had such a, a um, evident and painful impact on my mother. And others yeah. in the house, the whole family. Yeah. You know, when I was engaging in a tantrum or freaking out, it was it was scary. Yeah, and so here, you know, I think we're I think we're sort of dancing around that when we're talking about how Clara moves in, and you're noticing a lot of a lot of paying a lot of attention to what she's going, paying a lot of attention to. Is she approving of you? Yeah. So there was that element. And then there was the element of, again, I'll call it troubleshooting, being like, what can I do to win this person over? Yeah. I have to be funnier. Or one thing I noticed is sometimes just a tendency to want to fill silence with words. Mm-hmm. Because in silence, I don't know what's going on. I don't I have no, no real clue what she's thinking or feeling. With words, at least there's some sense, even if the conversation doesn't feel totally connected and sparkling, there's some degree of information coming in about her state. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of it has been in a nutshell, seeing those tendencies and just being able to let them go completely. Mm. Just learning to be very comfortable with the uncertainty that, I'm realizing is by bringing her into my life, I've brought more uncertainty into my life. I've, the last time I lived with a woman was 17 years ago. And even beyond that, I haven't had a day job in almost three years. So I have a great deal of control over my day-to-day existence. And therefore, relatively little unpredictability. The unpredictability in my life typically pre-COVID comes in in things like, oh, I got this uh, great booking. I'm happy about that. Oh, damn, I didn't get that booking. I'm unhappy about it. Or the subway's late again. Shoot, I'm going to be late to the show. Little things of just the way the world unfolds that I can't quite control or predict. But another person, that's a whole universe of unpredictability, another sentient being. Yeah. And 
so that was one thing I realized early on is, wow, for someone who I really look sometimes at OCD as an allergy to uncertainty, mm. almost like this just super strong reaction. You can look at an allergy as a, a visceral reaction to something that is actually worse than the thing itself. I might have said this before. This is my own little theory or, or metaphor, but the idea of uh, peanuts probably are not going to kill you inherently, but a peanut allergy your body's response to this perceived danger from peanuts absolutely can kill you and does kill, I think, thousands of, of people every year, maybe tens of thousands. So similarly, uncertainty itself is not inherently dangerous, but trying to get rid of uncertainty with obsessive thinking and behavior causes all sorts of suffering and pain. Yeah. And so for someone who has developed this OCD, as I believe all OCD is a way to try to control and eliminate uncertainty, letting all this uncertainty into my life feels like a big step. And the fact that I've been able to just roll with it has been very encouraging for me. Rightly so. It sounds like a big deal. I mean, this was not... Um yeah, I mean, having her come back st- still with coronavirus, quarantine, stress in full swing, it was kind of a high-stakes game, and it really sounds like you're handling it beautifully. And, and one of the things I'm realizing is it wasn't that high-stakes because so much of one of the beautiful things about being with her now, and I see this over and over in my life, is just this the collision between the ideas in my head, the, the fantasy or the catastrophic negative fantasy and the reality is always, there's always a huge gulf there. Yeah. You know, all these ideas that I had about what it would be like if she came back and all these ideas I've developed about who she is as a person where in a lot of ways, I don't know her that well, still don't know her that well. And so, yeah, one thing that's happened is I've kind of see this as, I feel like I am in a state of openness and pretty non-judgmental as things transpire between us, as we have interactions that sometimes feel really, really wonderful. Other times feel a little bit like, oh, we're not totally connecting. And other times may feel a little bit um, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, of course, there'll inevitably be things where, well, there is still a sensitivity at times where she'll do something and that may, that may prick a little feeling of provoke a little feeling of, uh, anxiety or hurt on my part. But universally when that's come up, I've been able to reflect on it and actually be okay with it because what I'm seeing these things happen to be a little bit more specific. She is very driven and very focused. So there will be times where she'll, And I think part of that comes out of her having some significant struggles throughout her life with depression and mood regulation. And so she's learned what she needs to do to take care of herself. And a lot of that for her, she makes a schedule every night for the next day. And the schedule, it's actually something that I've started doing. She's, it's helpful for me too. But the reason she makes the schedule the night before is she says, I don't want to have any time during the day where I where I have to think about what I'm going to do next. Cause if I do, that gives my mind an opportunity to start spiraling. Mm. Whereas she says, if I have the schedule, 
then I know what I'm doing next, and then I can depart from that. Like mm-hmm. if next thing on our schedule is I'm going to um, pay my electric bill, and, and that's not a great example. It's, she'll put things in her schedule. Her schedule is not just tasks. It's also things that are enjoyable activities mm-hmm. that she feels are really important for self-care. Reading. She feels like reading is actually a crucial tool for her with depression mm. because depression, as she explains, it is really this almost obsessive focus on herself. And so reading, and she reads like great classic literature. She's reading Middlemarch by George Eliot right now. She just finished a Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, and she tears through books. I'm a very slow reader. She is a, a, a rapid reader. And she'll carve out a couple of hours a day to read, even when she's really, really busy, because this is a practice that she finds gets her out of thinking about herself and actually mm-hmm. promotes some empathy and really can, she finds it can really transform her mood to the point that if she's having a rough time, even if reading isn't on the schedule, that's one of the tools she'll pick up the same way that someone else might say, okay, I need to go for a run or I need to meditate or I need to do yoga. Mm-hmm. She'll say, all right, I need, to, I need to find 20 minutes to read right now. So she'll put that sort of thing into her schedule. So what's my point? My point is she has her schedule and there may be, there may be times where we're enjoying a tender moment. You know, we're just sitting outside, holding hands, kissing, listening to the bird song, watching the sunset. And she'll just be like, okay, I need to go do this. And she'll just kind of get up <laughs> and, and walk away mm-hmm. with very little ceremony, no pretense of apology, nothing like, hey, I'm really enjoying this time with you, but I feel like for myself, I need to go exercise right now. Mm-hmm. And so I've noticed, this is pretty much extinguished by now after not that much time with her, but I noticed this feeling of being a little bit wounded when she would do that. And what that's been replaced by is one, a feeling of appreciation that this woman knows herself very well and and knows what she needs to do to take care of herself and is willing to do it because it's so easy, I think, to just, to, to not do the things. I mean, I, I constantly struggle with my to-do list and she's she's pretty regimented about it. So admiration that she's that way, appreciation that she knows herself, she knows what she needs to do, and also appreciation that this is the way she is, that she's... Um, that she is a strong person who trusts her intuition and her convictions. And and also an appreciation that, yeah, I don't actually really need that handholding. I don't actually need someone to say, hey, you know, I, I hope this doesn't feel like I'm walking away from you or rejecting you in any way. This is just what I, I don't, I don't, I don't actually need that stuff. Is this, there's this little part of me that almost wants to feel aggrieved. This is something I've become aware of. Hmm. A little part of me that likes feeling disrespected or rejected. And we can delve more into that. This is something I've been aware of for a while. Hmm. And I'd say I've largely extinguished this in the arena of friendships because it used to come up there too. Like a friend would cancel plans and there'd be a little part of me that was secretly pleased because I got to feel a little bit victimized and there was some pleasure in that. Mm. That that goes back like 20 years when I saw that first in myself. And I do feel like I've let that go. But maybe unsurprisingly in romantic relationships where it feels like there's more vulnerability, that tendency can still pop up. And so I have seen that in the past, but with her, I, I really have been able to let that go. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to know more about that part that almost wants to feel aggrieved. You know, maybe it comes down to this sort of meta tendency I have or strategy to protect myself by distancing myself from other people. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Then maybe that part of me looks for reasons to to resent people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that. I'm not sure. This isn't my conscious experience. And again, this isn't a tendency that comes up often in my life today. But it was something that was very present years ago. But it makes sense that there are are moments where you feel a little hurt by her or where you feel a little worried that, yeah, is she approving of me? Is she liking me? Are we connecting? And there's a there are moments of fear around that. Yeah, there have been, but they've been, they've really been petering out because yeah, it sounds I, like you're taking care of whatever, you know, I tend to think about moments like that as like transmissions from the inner child. Mm-hmm. And I find it helpful often to, to even sort of split the psyche into its, you know, different characters and literally think about it as though there is a little, a little boy in there, a little, whatever age it is, Adam, you know, maybe it's an eight year old, maybe it's a seven year old, maybe it's a 12 year old who in that moment, there's a wounded inner child coming out and saying like, Oh no, she doesn't like me. And the way we deal with the situation is sort of the way we, turn and talk to that inner child from our from our place of kind of adult consciousness um buck up bitch (laughs) that's one strategy guess how that tends to go (laughs) and no and that is a strategy i know people use and but yeah i haven't (laughs) had it like (laughs) when you when you when someone actually talks to a child that way what kind of adult do they tend to turn into not a happy one. <laughs> yeah, not a happy I, one. I would imagine. I would imagine so. Not uh, the, it keeps me in business. I mean, the fact that so <laughs> many people actually speak to their children that way is is tragic, and is yeah means that I'm not going to be out of a job anytime soon. It's awful. It but yet there is a there there is a there are there is a time and place to say kind of buck up maybe not in that aggressive maybe you yeah, can maybe you can sure. dispense oh, with yeah. the bitch part of it but <laughs> and i think that's part of what i'm seeing now is i don't need this continual reassurance in every moment that we're fully connected that she's totally appreciating me that she's completely enamored with me yeah yeah i just i don't i don't need it i'm i've found myself being very comfortable with the ambiguity and that's why I kind of liken it to a psychedelic experience is because it does feel like I don't quite know what's happening here. Something is happening. We're on a trip together. This is an intense emotional experience. Don't get me wrong. There's very, there's profoundly deep feelings for this woman. So we're, we're, and Hey, I mean, there all sorts of neurochemicals are being altered in each other's yeah. presence. No question about that. I'm experiencing <laughs> emotional states that I am not used to experiencing. You you liken it to a psychedelic experience because you're going into the unknown and you're just taking it as it comes and it's intense and emotional, but that's that's not to say that 
psychedelic experiences can be extremely extremely challenging for people for precisely that reason i mean psychedelic experiences can be traumatic acutely traumatic for people because one may not be equipped to bring that sort of curiosity and openness to it and i as you know have had such (laughs) precisely such challenging experiences and and I think this is one of the ways psychedelics have helped me it yeah. is is sort of tripping Adam has been able to model for sober Adam the behavior and the orientation of openness and surrender, which is not to say that I am, you know, I'm a psychedelic master who can roll with anything. Uh, it's been it's been I mean, I don't use psychedelics often anymore. The last time I had a, an experience of complete losing my shit, thought I was dying. And note I say the last time, because there have been several. The last time was at uh, at Niwei Rao, which you yeah. went to as well, this uh, yeah. ayahuasca retreat center in Peru. And so, so yeah, I, I, I've had those psychedelic experiences where what's going on here? I don't know, but I don't like it. Shit, I better somehow control this experience. And then my experience with psychedelics is when you really try to clamp down the control it's kind of like this this image just came to my head it's like you're trying to it's maybe it's from a cartoon or it's like you're trying to steer a car that's sort of careening off the road and you're gripping the steering wheel white knuckle and then the steering wheel breaks off in your hands (laughs) it's like oh shit i can't steer this car at all now whereas if you all right i'm going to go with this metaphor now now so the we both grew up in Massachusetts, and black ice, the the this incredibly dangerous road condition where you just can't see ice on the road. This probably applies to other road conditions too. When you lose control on black ice, when you're when you're um, sliding all over the road, the best strategy and <laughs> I, I, this is not actual someone don't 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 uh stake your life driving, on this i'm not a driving instructor <laughs> i'm not Nor a driving instructor. On the internet. <laughs> but i believe the best strategy is you actually let go of the wheel let that go trying to trying to trying to steer when you're losing control actually makes it worse that may or may not be true what i do know is true is and i read this somewhere it might have even been in a psychedelic book but when you're, um, I think it's when you're in free fall in a plane, th- there is some situation where the best, the safest strategy is to actually completely let go of the steering apparatus. Totally. Yeah. And psychedelics so many- for me. Yeah, when you're really, when it's really things are careening out of control, yeah. you, you got to just let go. <laughs> yeah, a teacher, a, a teacher of mine, a psychedelic teacher therapist was speaking with him with some other students and someone asked when you know i i was told that if someone in a psychedelic journey is is you know at death's doorstep not like in the visionary experience not ego death or but if they if they think they're about to die are are they supposed to not die this other oh person had heard somewhere that you you shouldn't die Right, the idea of like those point of the trip, just to clarify, where because I've been there, where I feel like if I let go, I'm going to die. I have to hold on. That yeah. that's what you're referring to. And there's some, I, don't, I guess there's some lore out there that there are certain death experiences that one should turn away from in the psychedelic state. That 
people have actually died um by going into the mouth of death or something and and um this teacher how could you how could you know that by definition (laughs) those people can't come back and be like good point (laughs) be like that you can't write a trip report when you're dead so i'm skeptical already but go on (laughs) that's an excellent point erwin has no no post from beyond the grave (laughs) but this 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 teacher is very wise wise person who's been in this in the psychedelic world a long time said no that's nonsense if you gotta die die <laughs> just die sometimes you gotta die sometimes yeah. you gotta die just die <laughs> you know, it's like whatever comes in a psychedelic experience the instruction is always to go into it if a scary monster shows up dive into its mouth you know and i think that yeah it's, it's so beautiful that you're um that you're talking about really integrating these lessons that you've learned hard won lessons you've learned on the mats of of the psychedelic battlefields you're downloading these into your life and it's not just from psychedelics that this general idea of surrender has For sure but psychedelics really yeah they have i like that psychedelic battlefield or the the practice <laughs> arena they've offered a, a very a lot of opportunities to practice that to practice surrender yeah. i mean that's probably been the single biggest way psychedelics have been valuable for me has been we've talked a little bit a little bit about this but not so much from insight in terms of oh this is really what's going on with the ocd or this is what's going on with this relationship though there have been those experiences but more from the visceral learning to practice the visceral act of surrender of letting go of relaxing into the unknown that brings up for me that brings me back to where we were sort of starting on different ideas of how therapy works um because I think it's a very common conception to think that, yeah, therapy is all about insight. It's all about learning new information about your mind. And you were saying mm-hmm. today, listen, I don't, you know, I feel like I kind of, I kind of got it figured out. I know what's going on. I don't really need a session right now. But I think another equally valid way of looking at the mechanism of therapy is similar to what we were saying with psychedelics as a, as a practice grounds as a Mm -hmm. training grounds and the training one of the richest one of the richest aspects of that training is uh, the relationship that one has with a therapist and i'm not saying that's really where we've been in our in our sessions together but this this idea of transference this idea that you know your feelings and experiences toward the therapist might be a really important aspect of this um, this practice, this training, and how to have a relationship, how to let go, how to be vulnerable. It's interesting because how do we bring that to bear in this relationship where our relationship to date has been friendship and that is still, I, I, th- I think of you as a friend and not as, as my therapist. And our conversations, albeit a friend who has not just... I'd say someone who's unusually insightful about matters of the mind and heart, but also someone who does have some tools and perspectives that you can bring to bear on yeah. some of the the, yeah. the challenges I have. But I don't feel, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What, what's your response to that? Yeah, I'm not saying we have to go there, but I definitely 
invite us to be open to it, you know, to in friendship, in therapy, in relationship. Right. It doesn't have to just be. Yeah. In any relationship, there are there is transference. The, the this this kind of technical concept of transference is is often used to describe the feelings one develops toward a therapist in therapy, but it's it's actually a non-specific term. It's a term that's not specific to that particular relationship configuration transference just more broadly refers to the fact that in relationships often one will experience feelings that are in some ways a repetition or a a mapping on of um of sort of deeper programs or past experiences things that have come up so i i think there have been moments where you've where I've done something or said something and you felt a little twinge of that, uh, of some of that like rejection stuff. You've shared that with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there have been, right. We did. Yeah. Not did that it's have. been, not that it's been a five alarm fire. Like the feelings are always going to be more intense. I think in a, in a deeper romantic relationship, but, uh, friendships always involve. Yeah. Some, some measure of conflictual emotion and th- sort of digging into those emotions often gives us clues about the past yeah and how your mind works so that's all to say don't be shy yeah how did we get onto this we were talking about the battleground the psychedelic battleground and then we went to and then I brought up the therapy thing. Oh, right. Therapy also being sort of a... A practice ground, not just a place to go like um, learn insight with your mind. Right. Right. Yeah. And the therapy that I have done in recent years has been ha- has not been insight-based, has been... We've talked about act, acceptance, and commitment therapy, which is a little different. It's not so much examining the therapeutic relationship, but it is bringing in whatever you're feeling in that moment, your thoughts and emotions that are your experience in that moment and and learning how to work with them and yeah. acceptance there is also the the key. Yeah. And so to that point I'm wondering if we might hear a little bit more about some of what you're doing in these moments you know the last couple of weeks. Yeah. When Claire has been here what what sort of tools are you pulling out? Yeah, so it's it's not even so much tools. It's just this yeah. seeing these twin impulses to take when she seems not to be as excited to take that as a reflection on me and then to want to try to fix that. So seeing that and then just kind of letting it go and just being comfortable with my own experience. I, we had, we were hiking. This was just a few days ago and it was, we weren't talking we, we were talking sometimes, but then there was a period of prolonged silence and he became aware that I was really focused on what is she feeling right now? What is she thinking? And instead I, and so I just sort of let that go and was like, okay, she's fine. Whatever is going on with her she's fine or if she's not fine that will become clear too and i'll i will navigate that situation if and when it that is a situation but right now i'm in this beautiful fucking forest with these staggering views 
So, and I've certainly spent many, many hours, many, many enjoyable, wondrous hours hiking alone. So it's actually kind of nice. I can just enjoy the silence and just be in the experience and just sort of let her, let her do her own thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it felt almost like a meditation where I really tuned my attention into my body and my senses. And it felt like I was kind of like retracting inward these little tentacles of awareness that I'd been shooting mm-hmm. out towards her, kind of these little probes into the Clariverse and retracted <laughs> them out and was giving all that energy to myself. And it felt great. I, I, had, I had very little training as an actor but one person who I worked with, I had a lot of voice issues because I don't have training as an actor. When you're doing a, The Mushroom Cure is now 90 minutes long. It used to be over two hours long. And the first off-Broadway run I did, my throat was just shot. I didn't know how to project to a full theater eight times a week. Oh. And so I started working with this vocal coach. But he's more than the vocal coach. He, um, he His name is Gary. Ah, why can I not remember his last name? A, a deep dude is someone who has a real a spiritual person and that's a vague term but i'm gonna i'm gonna just let it rest at that <laughs> so and he gave me it was very helpful but the thing he said that helped the most is he said don't give it all away to them don't give all of your energy to the audience he said keep some for yourself and he explained, I asked him questions about that, and he explained more, keep some of your awareness on your own your own physical experience, essentially. Because the problem I was having with my throat was fundamentally a breath problem. I was not breathing deeply enough because I was so focused on the performance, on sending mm-hmm. all the energy out to the audience, mm-hmm. on you know just killing it with, with energy and intensity. Yeah. And that was transformative for me and still is. And actually not just on stage, off stage too. When I'm in a conversation now, often there's a part of me, a part of my awareness that's just on my lower abdomen, just mm-hmm. just the breath kind of moving there. A yeah. small part, most of me is focused on the outside. And so this is what it felt like hiking with Clara where I was just more aware of my body instead of throwing all this energy, all of this probing and inter- interrogative energy towards her wondering what she was about. Yeah. What what was going on with her? Tentacles into the Clariverse is that's gotta be one of the It's our fourth album. It's our fourth that's album. <laughs> <laughs> um I love everything you just said so much. As you were saying it, I um took my microphone and tweaked it and moved it closer closer to where I'm sitting. I'm you know, I'm sitting on the floor on a meditation cushion, cross legged. Stop bragging. <laughs> in full full lotus i'm sitting in a i'm sitting in a hot tub with uh flutes of champagne and lines of blow so we have a different orientation to show that's, business baby that's your, <laughs> that's your that's your practice man um yeah but as you were saying that i was remembering how this this has totally come up for me in in making this podcast together and we've talked about this how it can feel hard at moments to capture the spontaneity and comfort and fluidity of our not recorded conversations when we're recording and i think for me undoubtedly that is related to just being nervous and thinking about what the uh what the the theoretical listener might be thinking of what i'm saying and then i get self-conscious and it comes out whatever i'm trying to say comes out just garbled or stilted or pretentious or whatever 
and um to the point of moving my mic i was remembering how during this process of recording one of the things i've learned is that as you were saying of focusing on your lower abdomen the more i'm seated upright and sort of um feeling what i would describe as my back body just kind of like feeling my spine erect going into my seat going into the ground and the more that i'm seated like that i feel like i'm remaining inside of myself i'm i'm literally kind of in my own seat and this is all it's so hard to talk about this without it's without it coming out as the sort of spiritual mumbo jumbo that you and i both seem to steep ourselves in so i'm just gonna i don't rolling. think it's coming out i don't it's think it's not, coming out that way you're you're being pretty specific and yeah, concrete like, about like yeah like experience. seated seated in myself both physically and spiritually and energetically and so when the microphone's too far away from me it i'm just in order to speak into it more clearly i'm therefore going to be leaning forward and that change in posture changes something inside too yeah sort of energetically emotionally whatever you want to call it and i'm less likely to be speaking from a place of the most comfort and fluidity that I can. So it's so interesting how I don't even know. I don't even remember exactly how we got on that topic, but yeah, how these things have both physical correlates and psychological correlates. We are thinking about, you know, this, like, what is this, this concept of like the energetic mind tentacles paying attention to Claire's experience. That's very, you know, that's uh, sounds very esoteric. That's or, very esoteric. But then you can also think about it as like, oh no, it, yeah, it. There are there are actual physical correlates of that too. If you really are are able to tune into your experience, for sure. And it, it is hard to talk about because it's, yeah, I don't really know what it is. I don't really. I I can't exactly break down what was no. i doing in that moment when i retracted my mind tentacles i guess in one <laughs> sense i just maybe it was just a focus of a a shift in my focus of my attention instead yeah. of consciously thinking about her i consciously thought about my body and the sights i was seeing and the sounds i was hearing so maybe tentacles is just this idea of energetic tentacles is simply metaphorical but i don't know who, who knows what the I fuck actually, is going I on think with reality <laughs> no, I think it's on the psychological level. I think what you're talking about is huge and represents a, a huge sort of developmental leap for you. And is an, it's an experience that I uh, re can relate to very much. So this, th these, um, yeah, this experience of being with a woman and sort of hyper-focused tracking of her emotional experience and is she okay is she happy is she sad is she approving of me is she disapproving of me and we could spend hours and hours and hours unpacking what that means but the first word that comes to mind is boundaries is just you are in in retracting your mind tentacles from her you are reestablishing the normal boundary that exists between you you are you and she is her and your experiences are different and she can be 
upset or bored on this hike or whatever. And you you don't need to know that because you are remembering that you're separate people and you're having your experience and you trust that she'll tell you if she needs something from you. She'll communicate. You don't have to mind read. And so just, yeah, I'll stop there for now, but just the, that's really hard for a lot of people to do to have those kind of boundaries in an intimate relationship. And obviously in my view, the reason for that goes down deep into our development as children and what, yeah. Yeah. And I think it probably does for me. We've talked a little, little bit about this, but the sort of dominant experience of growing up for me, dominant psychologically and in my memory, it wasn't like this was nine hours a day, but was most days getting into really intense fights with my mother that would affect her strongly emotionally and affect me strongly emotionally and feeling a great deal of guilt about that, which I think eventually perhaps that guilt was externalized in this, this body dysmorphic disorder where I concluded that I was a hideously deformed monster. Yeah. Yeah. So it does feel like it, and whether or not that is the root of all of this, it does feel like this is big for me. What's happening now with her, where it's just because the thing also about her is she is prone to to moods, and mm-hmm. again, she takes real responsibility for taking care of herself, and even to the point that she doesn't. She was never an alcoholic, but she realized at one point in her life that she would. Um, she was drinking to to modulate her moods in a way that mm-hmm. was concerning to her. So she stopped. She doesn't smoke weed for the same reason. So she's someone who I, again, I have a great deal of appreciation for her willingness and ability to make difficult choices that she knows serves her in the long run. But even with that, I think, you know, I'm at a place now, Jordan, thanks to four or five or however many episodes we've done of not therapy where I'm happier and more well-adjusted than I've ever been. It is no, I was afraid you were going to give, I was afraid you were going to give credit to like the years of other therapy, the meditation, the no, it's uh, all this. step it's all group, this. the psychedelics. Thank God you finally understand. <laughs> no, but I am as we, as we've talked about, I mean, the general trend in my life for years has been things getting better and better. And then that trend took a real sharp upturn beginning just like in December as a result, I think of changes in my prayer and meditation practice, luck, the universe delivering some really nice things to me career wise and otherwise. So I feel like I'm in a place now where my default is generally feeling pretty happy and content and pretty stable. And I think her default overall is feeling like that too but within the course of an average day or a week she may have some pretty dark moments and i often don't Mm -hmm. and so one thing that's become that that i've been sort of investigating is this idea of yeah when we're hanging out and it doesn't feel the variations in how it feels when we're together may be due more to her shifting moods than to mine it's so huge. Yeah. And I think and I think they are because I think her moods shift more than 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 mine do. And I think if I'd met her 10 years ago, um, though I wonder if I could have she said something interesting. She said you she said her mother 
says that you always meet the best people when you're at your best. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I certainly feel, I mean, she's a, she's a formidable human being. She is Sounds like it. super smart, very self-aware, really gifted creatively and artistically. And so, yeah, I feel like if I had met her at a point in my life where I was not in a good place, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we would have clicked. I don't know if she would yeah. have wanted to put, yeah. put up with me and, and the same token, she, I think if I'd met her a, a year or two ago, cause she's made a lot of changes just in the last couple of years, I feel like I might not have felt the same, the same way about her. Not that we have to be perfectly well-adjusted and at our best in every moment, but yeah, there's a baseline level where I feel like both of us are generally in a good place, but but her mood changes more than mine does. And so yeah. that 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 may determine our interactions more than my my relatively stable mood does. I think there's totally something to be said for what her was it her mom who said that you Yes, yeah. Yeah, that you that goes back to that manifesting yeah. idea that we were talking about in a recent episode that you meet the best person when you're when you're ready for it when you're in a good place but yeah i'm just struck that i think this represents such a big step for you the ability to see some of this enmeshment stuff coming up where you're worried about how she's feeling how it reflects on you and you're able to separate from that and just say oh yeah that, that might be her thing that might have nothing to do with me Cause that is just, that's so, I think that's been so deep wired in you and, and I'm, I know what it feels like cause it's something that's deep wired in me. I've, it's a feeling I'm really familiar with is when I am with a partner thinking that everything going on with them, um, namely the bad stuff, not perhaps not so much the good stuff, but if, yeah, if they're upset or in, in any way, it must have something to do with me. I must've done something wrong in that just goes right to childhood it goes there's a quote i don't know if i've ever told you this by this uh scottish psychoanalyst named fairbairn and he said that for a child it's better to be a demon in a world ruled by god than it is to be an angel in a world ruled by the devil meaning that a child is always going to make it about themselves is always going to uh, locate locate the problem within themselves it's better for them because, to feel like i'm the bad one i'm the bad one cuz it's yeah cuz think about it for a little for a helpless small child if your parents are good people and you're a monster you know you have some hope you can you can do something about that and they'll still feed you and take care of you while you're wow. you know trying to deal with your monsterness but if you're a three-year-old and your parents are devils, you're going to die. You are, you know, it's, it's back to that. We're always bringing in sort of life and death, evolutionary psychology concepts. But of course, that's how it is for a baby, for a toddler. If your parents are bad, you will cease to exist. They will not care for you and you will die. So it's always going to be easier for a child. It's always going to be the tendency for a child to who experiences trauma and again that's you know capital t horrible things or lowercase t just the inevitable the inevitable ways that you know 
pretty much everyone in their in their childhood at some point that they're, they're something emotionally suboptimal happens some you know something something bad happens and a child is always going to adopt the stance that there must be something wrong with me and that carries forward into adulthood unless we do something about it and i so i i hear this big theme in what you're talking about how you've been able to approach clara which is that i think that sounds like it's starting to change for you and that you're able to pick up something off in the field between you something off in the dynamic her and say "Mm, this might be about her it might not be my might not be my fault yeah and it does feel significant to me because i do think it's something i've carried into adulthood where there is a often my first assumption is to assume that if there's a problem in in a relationship or even a situation to kind of look to myself to to think could i have and maybe in some way this connects to the ocd because we've talked about this before with ocd and this terror of making a mistake we've talked about the idea that if an if a bad outcome happens that is a result of of you making a mistake that hurts much more than if the same outcome happens randomly if you're yeah. uh yeah if you know if I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example. If your wedding is canceled due to rain because you chose to have a wedding in India during the monsoon season, you're an idiot, man. Why did you have a wedding in India during the monsoon season? But if there's a freak rainstorm in Oakland where I am during the dry season, well, you know, who could have predicted that? Yeah. I think we used that Alanis Morissette reference last time we talked about this theme too. (laughs) What was the reference? I don't, I have no recollection. Rain on your wedding day. Oh, right, right, right. From, right, from the right, Atlantis right, right. Morris course, course, single yes. ironic yes. off the yes. album Jagged Little Pill. Yes. <laughs> the now first concert musical. I ever went to. Oh, really? <laughs> With my mom and my I think, sister. I think my first one was Billy Joel. We are very white. <laughs> <laughs> Foxborough? Did you go to Foxborough? <laughs> no, this is at uh, uh, the, the Mullen Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah, so so there's this thing where if the mistake could have been, if the loss could have been avoided, yeah, then it hurts a lot more. And so I'm trying to tie this in, and this may or may not be valid. That maybe there's something. Yeah, when something goes wrong, often in my life, the first thing I do is interrogate myself: Could I have prevented it? Yeah. Oh crap! I'm going to be late to this gig because the subway was late. Well, I couldn't have prevented that. Oh, well, you know what? If I'd taken this other subway line, if I checked the mta.info website before and I, I would have known that the A train was having delays, I would have taken the tooth and I would have been late. Okay, then it's my fault and now I have yeah. to beat myself up over it. Yeah. The but there is... Need, so, sorry, go on. The need for certainty and control is so universal and extends so far outside of this construct of OCD. And I, I think that's been a point that I've hit on a number of times in our conversations is like a lot of this stuff that goes on that lives under the, under the title of OCD with you is so universal to emotional suffering in, of whatever form. And, you know, I was using, that mechanism of needing to 
or wanting to have control and certainty over what's going on, I think is so universal and cuts so deep into the human condition. I think that's one of the points I've tried to hit on in our conversations is that while in you that sort of lives under the heading of OCD, I think it's so much more universal than, than that. And so not specific to any one, you know, quote diagnosis. Um, I was using, I, this came to mind for me with a patient of mine the other day who struggles in dramatically different ways, uh, than, than you have in your emotional life. But this subject of control came up and I used an example from my own life. I remember I was once fishing, um, off of a rock sort of out in the ocean with a friend at the end of a so at the end of a jetty, like a, a series of rocks that go out into the ocean. And a big like, rogue wave came and swept me off this rock. And I, oh, it wow. was pretty dangerous. I fell, I wound up falling off this rock, but probably about six feet and fortunately landed in about two feet of water. And then there was another rock on top of that. So my fall was broken and I was able to like get a purchase and fortunately pull myself out. And I was, a little bruised, but none the worse for wear. But it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, that's it could have it could have gone horribly. I mean, not unthinkable that I could have been killed in a situation like that or seriously injured. And I remember for the rest of the day, all I could do was rehearse what had gone on and think about what I had done to be okay. I had to find a way that I had moved my body in such a way or yeah, shifted my feet, gotten moved slightly to the left or something. I needed to find a story that I had done something to be okay. I couldn't accept that I had been helpless and gotten really lucky. That was that was so scary to me. It had to be that I did something. Oh, I, I would have been really screwed if I hadn't had the presence of mind to turn my left shoulder this way and anchor my right foot so mm-hmm. that I broke the fall to some degree. It was so it was so intolerable to think like, man, that happened so quickly. I was in a I was stupid to be out there, and I could have been dead if not for sheer luck. Accepting the lack of control is so much harder than yeah is the is the hardest part i think right because if if you can give yourself credit for doing something to save yourself in that situation it implies that hey if something unpredictable happens again i'll probably be okay other people may be the ones who fall off the jetty and break their neck and die but not me whereas if you accept the reality that that was sheer luck in a parallel universe you know i drown then Sure, you're probably going to be more careful going on on a jetty next time, but there's an infinite number of situations that you will be in over the course of your life where the unpredictable can and will happen. Yeah. Yeah, so we kind of do it both ways. When bad things happen, we make it about ourselves. When good things happen, we make it about ourselves. Either way, we're trying to avoid the reality that we have far less control than we would like to as humans. And, that and I think this die. comes, yeah. And in this case, if we want to map that onto this relationship, 
I suppose the the equivalent of death or the fate that I would be trying to avoid if I were to give into trying to figure out and win her over would be the potential of this relationship not working out of me losing her. Yeah, the idea which again that- is not such a big, which in reality is not a big deal, but in those moments where the sort of wounded inner child is running the narration that is a huge deal because rejection by a woman you know picks at some childhood wounds where that is a matter of life and death if you get rejected by your mom you're gonna die interesting yeah i'd i'd we should delve into that more i'm not saying it doesn't connect to that pragmatically though for me one reason i've been able to to let go of trying to control and figuring out is because I have been able to say, okay, not only do I not know how this is ultimately going to turn out, I don't even know how I want it to turn out. Totally. I mean, I'm falling for this woman hard and she's falling for me hard, but it's still early days. We've known each other for less than four months. So yeah, I can't say that this is someone who I want it feels right now like, of course, I want this to continue and deepen, and it's hard for me to imagine that changing right now, but but who knows? Yeah, I don't know her well enough. So I think we've talked about this before in the past. I've had this real impulse to, to kind of very quickly in a relationship to be like, oh, this is the one. This is going to be the thing that saves me, or oh, no, 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 this isn't going to work out at all because mm-hmm. she has these flaws or, or the relationship has these problems. And with her, I really have been able to stay in that place of just, I don't know, I'm just going to kind of see how see how this unfolds. I don't actually have an agenda here other than I want to continue getting to know this woman and allowing the relationship to deepen. And the other thing I think that helps kind of mitigate that otherwise sort of knee-jerk fear of loss that I often have, which I have with, you know, we talked about this even going hiking and seeing a beautiful sunset and mm-hmm. and me telling myself, well, don't enjoy this too much because this is going to end. Yeah, I've been able to stay away from some of that real paralyzing fear of loss with Clara also because I'm aware of that. Holy shit. The fact that I can do this thing that I haven't been able to do in so many years to really just be present with a woman and not worry about where it's going and not worry about, does she like me enough? Am I winning her over? The fact that in short, I can have just an authentic open connection with a woman. And also, by the way, we haven't talked about it this episode, but we have in past episodes, that part of my brain, that very OCD part that finds flaws with women. Oh, she, she, you know, we don't, we don't share a sense of humor or there's some slight physical imperfection or whatever, you know, that part. I've really been able to not shut it down, but just kind of not pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And that's been the thing that's doomed many past relationships. Yeah. So in short, the fact that I'm able to really have this connection with a woman in a way I haven't been able to in 17 years and probably never have before in my life, because 17 years ago, I was certainly at a very different place emotionally and in my maturity. So if I can do this with one woman, I feel like, yeah, I can do this with a lot of women. There's 8 billion people on the planet. Clara is very special to me and she's the one who I want to be doing this with now. But yeah, I don't feel like there's one true love for everyone and that's it in in the world. I feel like I can have different connections, but healthy, strong, nourishing connections with a lot of women because now I've, I'm able to do this. 
So that also undercuts some of the fear of loss where it's like, well, and I even said this to her when we, we had a, a conversation about some of this, touching on some of the stuff you and I have talked about. Because in the past, she had expressed this concern that she doesn't want me to put too much on this, like this has to work out. And I said to her, you know, I really have nothing to lose here because if all that comes out of this is it's kind of, you know, blowing the cobwebs off my emotional apparatus, if it's <laughs> if it's uh, sort of, I don't want to say a practice run because that implies that this in, in itself is not important and deep and it is, but yeah, I'm learning to do something, mm-hmm. a crucial skill that I've not been able to do before and that that is invaluable. So it's... um. Yeah, I feel very, very encouraged by all of this. While at the same time, sure, there is, I don't want to overstate. It's not like I'm, it is a continual practice day by day of, of yeah, just letting go more and more of, of these fear-based impulses and responses that are deeply ingrained. Yeah, and they'll never go away. So the, like Ram Dass talked about this. How he said he never lost a single neurosis in his entire life, you know, <laughs> however many thousands of hours meditating on retreat and hundreds and hundreds of psychedelic sessions. He said he never lost a single neurosis his entire life. They just become, you know, kind of like cute, cute little cute little friends that show up every now and then you're like oh you <laughs> oh you're still here that's funny <laughs> rather than this terrifying monster that you know yeah. you have to obey its every dictate yeah he used he used the uh a word for them he named them he called them schmooze i don't know if that has a spelling i, I in my mind i imagine s-h-m-u and yeah the word schmoo brings to mind like a a sort of eeyore like um kind of like i have yeah like a unicorn like a dumpy, like a dumpy sword <laughs> and it was like oh you you're back oh how you doing have some water have some hay i don't know hang out but yeah. you're not scary <laughs> yeah they'll never go yeah. away yeah that's and you don't that, want them to why don't you want them to uh, cause they're, I think they're connected to what makes you human and they're so you, they're, it's not, even, it's not clear exactly what they're connected to, but they're connected to, you know, some, some of the most beautiful parts of us, our insecurities, you know, there's, there's plenty yeah. of like idioms, sort of spiritual tropes about this. The cracks are where the light shines in stuff like that. You know, it's like they're, they're a part of your story. They're part of what makes you. I mean, you're a professional comedian, for God's sakes. It's like you can't. These things, your insecurities. You take away the neuroses. What's my act? You mean? <laughs> yeah, you're like. So I've been feeling really well adjusted recently. Yeah. Like, what's? Let me talk about this like, healthy, nurturing relationship I had with my mom. Who's that comedian? Was Steve? Ta- who made like that show Tosh Point oh? I don't know. It's probably not. Yeah, Daniel anymore. Tosh. Yeah. I never liked that guy. I was like, I can't tell where where this guy's vulnerable. I can't tell where this guy's wounded. He's like, he always struck me as smug and that's not funny. This is my beef with a lot of comics now is, yeah, where's the vulnerability? Like John Mulaney. Yep. Another good that guy example. was not vulnerable and not funny. He would make a funny, dark, uh, cr- some crude jokes now and then, but 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And I was saying John Mulaney, very funny, but you don't get, and he talks about vulnerability, but you never actually, you never feel like he's really vulnerable. I don't feel like I know this guy. I don't know what keeps him up at night. What, whereas someone like say Richard Pryor or Maria Bamford or um, Eddie Pepitone, some of my favorites, you're like, oh, this the, uh, the, these people are fucked up and I, I love it and I, I see myself in it and they're they're laying it out to, for all to see and yet they're yeah. making light of it and it's really to me the alchemy of comedy at its in its highest form is totally. transforming that pain into laughter which to me is a yeah. form of love absolutely here here well speaking of vulnerability are you fixed and perfect now <laughs> I don't know, but I, I'm feeling like if you abandon me right now for this episode, I probably, uh, I'll probably be okay with it. I won't take it personally. Oh, the student has become the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> you have completed your training. <laughs> no, great work, man. I'm really, I'm, I'm so glad to hear how well it's going. Thank I'm you. So excited yeah. for you. It is, it is a journey. It feels like a trip and, uh, We'll 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 see where I uh, where I end up when the uh, when it all when I've reentered the uh, the atmosphere. But you'll end up you'll you'll die at the end. Of, I can tell you how the story <laughs> ends. You die. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Spoiler alert! The you trip ends. <laughs> the trip ends when towards you die. enlightenment, and then yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know, knock on wood, we have thousands of episodes to record before that our audience shudders at the prospect (laughs) (laughs) unsubscribes skyrocket (laughs) we talked about our uh, our 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 patronage model we're going to start a patreon and uh, (laughs) people who support the podcast financially get less get access to less content (laughs) right you will not we will not inflict quote-unquote special episodes on you if you pay us it's really <laughs> a hostage model if you're listening without entering the special rss feed that you get through the payment portal you have to listen to four episodes a week <laughs> it's like the psychoanalytic training schedule <laughs> right is that like four times a week traditionally three or th- i think three i think some places are getting a little looser and allowing three yeah three sessions a week yeah we'll get there all right dude great work love you yeah love you too talk soon talk soon bye